One of the best aspects of cryptocurrencies that are public and permissionless, that don't require a gatekeeper to give you permission to buy, to trade, to sell, is very important for minority communities that have been systemically marginalized, intentionally redlined, in this moment in time, if you're going to be a modern minority, you have got to own things in a way that doesn't allow for current systems to keep you out. You need to be in this like yesterday. My name is Tanya Evans, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Today, we're talking to Professor Tanya Evans. Tanya is a lot of things and a lot of fun. Professionally, she's a professor of law at Penn State Dickinson Law School. She's also an associate dean of academic affairs. And not only is she involved in academia, but she does a lot of stuff in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space. She actually has her own learning academy called Advantage Evans Academy, specifically to help people get into blockchain, to help people learn more about the crypto space, and to help with personal investments. We had so much fun talking the other day. We, we found out so many interesting things about her. And we also heard her rap for a couple bars. So you guys have to stick around for that for sure. Melissa, what did you think of our conversation with Tanya? I mean, first of all, I absolutely always enjoy any mention of rap, but I really appreciated how she demystified a lot of the ways that crypto can be accessible to minorities. Absolutely. And I actually realized I just kind of threw you in here as if everyone already knew who you were. So for those of you who don't recognize this voice, <laughs> it's not Roman. Melissa is, it's not Roman, if you haven't figured that out. Melissa is one of our friends of a pod. And she's also a Canadian podcaster, and she's also been involved before. So we brought her back today. And that's because Roman's off doing something really amazing or really weird. Melissa, do you have any idea where he is today? <laughs> something, who knows, something nerd related, I feel like. That's always a good guess. <laughs> well, I don't even, I don't even. Maybe a big trip to Arrakis? Yeah, he mentioned something about Arrakis, and neither of us knew what that was. So if you guys know, please, please let us know. <laughs> Enlighten us. <laughs> right. But I have to say, Melissa, you were definitely an upgrade for a co-host today. So let that be heard <laughs> and on record. Yeah. Shots fired. Exactly. And I'm glad you joined us today. And I hope you guys enjoy Melissa and my conversation with Professor Tanya Evans. Tanya, it is so great to have you on the podcast. Absolutely. I have been looking forward to this for a long time. It's wonderful. Tanya, I get asked this a lot, so I'm going to turn this question back on you. Where are you from? I was technically born in D.C., but I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in this grand United States of America experiment. <laughs> experiment. <laughs> and you may not get asked this pretty often as a follow-up, but where are you really from, Tanya Evans? 
It's always a curious question when I hear that, not so much for myself, but for others when underneath that question is really, you don't look like you're from fill in the blank. So tell me your real story as if that's a very privileged position to even ask someone a question like that. To think about my own life and maybe how I speak or where I went to school or the fact that I'm a former professional tennis player, fell head first down the rabbit hole of crypto law professor. That's a lot. That's a lot in one human (laughs) experience, but it's actually hard to respond to. And at this point, I feel like I'm I'm leaning into just being a nomad and just like (laughs) not really claiming any particular area. I I think I'm just from the future. Yes. I like that idea. I like the idea that you're from the future because you are definitely way ahead of your time. (laughs) Citizen of Earth. Exactly. Let's go. And as as a little girl growing up in Philadelphia, is there a childhood memory that has really impacted who you've become today? Probably one of the most impactful is where I went to school, actually for 12 years from first grade through 12th grade, a small private Quaker institution, Friends Central School. And mm-hmm. when I first started, we had the, the largest number of Black students in the class, certainly in the past. I don't know what the numbers are today, but those classes are intentionally small. So I think I graduated with 68, maybe 70 folks. So that if you if, if it's 70 and there's seven of us, you just got into double digits, which is really unheard of in a, a school like that at that time. We're talking late, late 80s. And so a lot of my classmates remain my friends, as as do some of the the teachers at the time as well. And that has been very meaningful because decades have passed. Don't judge me. Yes, yes. So that's a testament to the experience and also the culture that was created there of community and cohesiveness that has transcended that moment even to this time. What did you want to be when you grew up? (laughs) Somewhere between an architect and a rapper. That makes sense. That is what one does when you are an architect. You also write. An architect of rhymes, an architect of beats. Let's go. Exactly. I see what you did right there. Exactly. And how did you arrive on those two things? Like, how are those two <laughs> things related? <laughs> that is a great question. I'm almost regretting that I actually said it out loud. Right, so now I have to right. support it. When I think about the idea of sitting down to plan things out, I'm highly risk adverse and don't really like surprises, which is crazy given what I do with my life right now. But the idea, probably from the aspect of intellectual curiosity, the lifelong learner in me really likes to sit down and have a a well laid out plan. And then the beauty of that on the other side is seeing it come to fruition and manifesting. And so as I think about what I do in my my day and night life now, both as a professor and the CEO of me, (laughs) which we can Mm -hmm. talk about as well, this idea of setting out a plan, seeing it come to fruition. But what I do in my adult life is making sure I leave, leave a little space for the magic. Right. And I want to hear more about the rapping, though. Oh, yes, <laughs> that part. So back in the day, before yep. the interweb, thank you, I was known as, are you ready? Are you sitting down? Because I don't ready. want to shock you. I don't want you falling Already. ready. But I was known as, <laughs> I was known, my handle back in the day before handles as Lady 180, 
Anyone? Come on now. Shout out. Oh, good. So, you know, I think back to one of my hottest tracks back in the day on literally a cassette, Lady 180 on the MIC. Hard rocking, never shocking. Don't that's me. I'll do that part for free, but if I do all 16 bars, y'all going to have to pay me. (laughs) Might have to be an NFT. Let's go. Let's NFT it. I'll retire early. So with your your dual career aspirations growing up, architect, rapper, did you (laughs) express that to your parents? Were they supportive? Anything I said, honestly, there might be some, I don't think there's a silent heartbroken about how I turned out. It was like, you like it, kid, I love it. (laughs) So I was always encouraged very early to be creative and I'm an only child. So I'm my own little best friend. I will sit quietly and play with myself for hours with my blocks and this and my plans and uh, my cassettes (laughs) and just really vibe off of that. So my mother is a patent attorney. My father is a doctor who also served um, in the highest capacity as a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force before mm-hmm. being discharged honorably and going on with his private practice. And so both of my parents are entrepreneurs as well. And so I've checked all the boxes. So I think they were just always excited and encouraged. I was an athletic child as well. And so I was very supported in that that respect too. And creative and creative. Yeah. And you didn't end up becoming an architect or a rapper, did you? No, I did not. I I didn't notice some judgment in that. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, Melissa? Or is it just me? I'm very sensitive. I'm the only child, as I mentioned. (laughs) "Hmm." She chose violence and I I don't appreciate it. Sorry. I didn't mean for it to come across (laughs) that way. I just meant you had, you had some plans, you planned it all out. And so you at some point you you took a pivot, right? So tell us a little bit about how you arrived where, mm-hmm. where you are today. The other side of the intellectual curiosity and kind of leaning into creative things, I came into the world also with this idea of coloring inside the lines. I talk about this a bit sometimes in when I'm doing speaking engagements. The idea that, and this maybe a, a common experience among modern minorities or maybe not modern minorities about really checking off all the boxes. Yeah. You go to school, you're going to do well, you're going to get a great job, high income, some insurance, buy a home and then wait it out. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And I bought into that. I don't recall that being a persistent mantra within my home though. I feel like I just really came in with that. It, I would have to go through therapy again in order to really get underneath the why, but there was not an express statement of you have to do this. That being said, I was surrounded by people who had had achieved great excellence with way less than I ever had. Yeah. And so I think I'm also an observant child and Mm -hmm. no one really had to tell me twice to do those things. In fact, they had to say, go outside and play. Go sit down somewhere. What are you doing? Wow. So that, that that's more nature than nurture in my experience. And when you're saying intellectual curiosity and and not going out to play, what were you what were you doing as a child then? Were you reading a lot of books? Were you doing experiments? <laughs> Was I drafting <laughs> architectural plans? Yeah, were you yeah, were you <laughs> are you designing the next Sistine Chapel? Like what what was going on? <laughs> oh gosh. I, I 
by the time I was in eight, nine, 10, and really in my early teens, I was an elite athlete. So I spent most of my time in the morning doing some type of workout outside of school. I would go to school all day. I would then play whatever sport I was signed up for. Usually, uh, interesting fact, I believe it was in middle school where I was the best tennis player literally on campus. (laughs) And I ended up joining the boys tennis team, hashtag title nine. And I was the number one player on the boys team because there wasn't a comparable level of competition for me. And so much of my time was involved in, in some type of athletic endeavor. That is fascinating. So you were on the boys team (laughs) as a girl, as a girl, because, because there wasn't any, there just, the level of competition just didn't, or, or rather you surpassed any level of competition for the girls teams. Right. Wow. How did that happen? Like, I have to assume there's got to be certain hoops that people had to jump through and like permission slips that had to be signed and maybe Mm -hmm. even like overturning certain regulations. Like how did that all happen? Well, largely driven by, in all seriousness, Title IX and the requirements that there be sufficient opportunity for boys and girls in many respects, but certainly in sport. And the the backside of what the school had to do or what the my parents had to do, I actually don't even know that story. Mm-hmm. Which and that's not to say that that work didn't happen. But I feel like I was sheltered from a lot of the issues. I've learned some as an adult that it wasn't always as rosy as I thought it was. Yeah. And but a lot of those battles, your parents, you know, my mom in particular, rolling up sleeves and going in to do battle behind closed doors, or my grandparents, who my parents, they were young when I was first born. Mom in law school, my father in medical school. And so they needed a lot of help and support. And so I spent a lot of time with my maternal grandparents in Philadelphia. So there were a lot of advocates on my behalf that did all of the work that made it so that I had a pleasant experience and can think fondly over those years. They may not think as fondly, but they they spared me and, and allowed me to be a child. That's so great. And they never, and even to this day, huh? It's kind of magical that they've preserved that for you, but also that you're sitting here today having having benefited from all of that and, and their love and their support. Absolutely. Um, that's amazing. Wow. So kind of related to that, I wonder, were there moments when you felt like you had to fit in, being that you were maybe the only girl at a competition or even in your experience at the Quaker school, probably being just different from everybody else? Did you ever feel like you had to do anything to fit in with the mainstream? At school, not as much good, bad, or otherwise, and particularly as an athlete. One, I was about to say this thing about maybe being in the cool kids club, but I kind of, I just got along with everybody. So the athletes, the brainiacs, the nerds, the creatives, I was able to navigate those spaces well. And Oftentimes in school environments, athletes are lauded, good, bad, or otherwise. I don't know mm-hmm. that we're any more special, but athletes get that kind of attention. Where it had, where I did experience that very heavily in terms of discrimination, and always feeling like the other was in the the world of tennis. Yeah, and I can remember times when, in my teens, and going from twelve and under to fourteen and under, all the way up to 18 and under. And that's really where you start getting the attention of colleges. I was awarded a scholarship to Northwestern. And then I played 
a scholarship athlete at Northwestern for four years, graduated, and then played on the Pro Tour, mostly on the Challenger and um, satellite circuits. Think like AAA baseball, right? Trying to always earn enough points to get into the majors. And with that, you're traveling the world, going to a lot of exotic places, even if it's some type of emerging nation. If you're going to a tournament in that area, it's in some ritzy elitist place where you also know in the United States and beyond that you would never be there, but for that week yeah. and everybody there from the gatekeeper all the way to the owner is going to make sure that you don't forget it. So I think of a time when I was playing the Philadelphia international grass courts, that actually was the showcase that would allow me eventually to get so many offers for scholarships and ultimately to secure one. It was my success at that tournament, Philadelphia grass courts. I was at a cricket club and show in, show up every day, dressed like everybody else, like mm-hmm. one would to go and play a tournament. My credentials would be checked every time. It was always a hassle where my guests were going to be, where we could sit every day. And that is just an example of across the board, a lifetime of being in, an elite sport and absolutely not being well, not sometimes just under the surface and then other times more often above the surface. And that was always a challenge. It it makes me think of another part of the process is playing some of the warmups to major events. And I was over um, in England trying to qualify for Wimbledon, or at least to get into the qualifying rounds of Wimbledon. And I was number one seed at a feeder event and I showed up to the home of the person who was to put me up during the tournament. Oftentimes, people connected to the country club or whatever it is will offer to put up. It's, a, it's actually a point of pr- pride and, and a distinction to, to house a professional tennis player. I showed up at the door. She opened the door as if she had seen a ghost. She said that there had been a mistake and that I could stay the night, but there had been a change and I couldn't stay there during the tournament. So I am there by myself because it's actually very expensive to travel. Not everybody gets to travel with their whole entourage and their hitting partner and their tennis coach, right? Mm -hmm. It's me and usually a doubles partner, except at the big events or ones that are close to home. So some of those memories, and probably it's my mind protecting me from the epic disappointment and hurt, but the long and short of that, the impact of that the next day, I lose in three sets, number one seat. I find my way to Heathrow crying to try and change my ticket. And by some miracle, we didn't have a lot of money. By some miracle, I find myself on a plane just coming back to the States. And I share that just to say, what would my life have been like if that had, if there had been a different outcome, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Just the through lines of how these small moments can just reverberate and and have such major impacts. Thinking about that and just reflecting on that element of being othered and then looking at kind of the financial and the tech space, a lot of it is mm. the language of being outside or disrupting or, or looking at things that are not kind of typical. So how did you mm. find your way towards tech? First of all, I love that awareness. Thank you for that, because that's a lovely, as you said, the through point, and and I'm going to journal about that. I love that. Great point about disruption and how I would find myself here. As I said a bit earlier, I'm highly risk adverse, (laughs) and 
when I think about the disruptive impact of blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies, and other crypto assets, maybe an unlikely person to have found my way here. I was introduced to Bitcoin in particular in 2017. A friend of mine was in a working group, actually working on blockchain, not specifically cryptocurrencies. And that was also during a time where there was this great debate. I think we were in crypto bear markets. So prices were deflated. And as we say, moving sideways, not going up in value, not really going down, but, but just flat for a long time. So that was the opportunity to focus more on the technology and the build. And she was talking about it all the time. So I also knew that because blockchain technology in most instances, and let's even say what blockchain is, a blockchain is a digital record of transactions and balances, essentially. And instead of a centralized party keeping that record, right, Melissa, if I sent you a thousand dollars from my bank, my bank would have to settle that on its internal ledger. Your bank would do the same. There could be some changes in between that. There could be human error. There could be confiscation, all sorts of things, depending upon where you are. Instead of being in that centralized environment, it's in a decentralized way so that there is a network of computers that run software to maintain the records of transactions and balances. Makes it really difficult to shut down, makes it really difficult to change. And some of those are some of the benefits that protect people who are traditionally locked out of, of tech and finance, as, as I think you mentioned earlier. My process into it was understanding also that most of this was open source software, right? This idea of community and collaboration instead of hyper competition from an intellectual property perspective. And I'm an IP lawyer and law professor, IP and technology. So that was interesting to me. I didn't know anything about enough about crypto. It sounded like, I don't know, funny money, didn't know where yeah. it was, dark web. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, this, but the technology was interesting to me at the time. And so I leaned in because I wanted to develop courses or at least topics within my course curriculum to train yeah. the next wave of lawyers to be conversant in the language of technology and really participate meaningfully. So that was my entry point. But, and, and final point, in order to really do that well, I had to buy some crypto, figured out where it is, sure. how to move it, the interrelationship between digital ownership in Web3 environment and the record keeping aspect of it. Then I fell down the rabbit hole and I woke up and it was 2021. So that's basically the story. <laughs> and then Bitcoin was at its all time hey, high. Exactly. And, and then I just, rushed off to Tahiti. This is basically my life. Exactly. And then you bought a private jet and who knows. Hey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, something I find so interesting about crypto and I'm, I own like half a coin of ether that I bought a long time ago. Like that's my only experience with it. Yep. But same as you, it was like, hey, this is, first it was like, this is really shady. Like what on earth are we even talking about? Right. But then it was kind of like, well, let me just like put a little bit of whatever I've got into it and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I had other people around me, ironically, and I want to get to this, people of color around me that were like pumping a lot of money into right. this thing. And one was I was a little afraid for them because mm -hmm. I was like, okay, like this isn't the stock, like this isn't a traditional investment opportunity. So like, is it less legitimate? Is it more risky? All of these things. 
those people too are just like you. They're like living in Tahiti now and like have retired and all of those things. So they were, they were the smart ones. I was like, I was totally being very bearish about all of it, but it has provided an entry point and a completely different like opportunity for so many of us who didn't, didn't grow up well with wealth around us, didn't right. have parents or grandparents or long legacies of people that knew a lot about investing. And tell, talk to us more about that because I know that's something you're really passionate about. And it's just, we're at a time where that's so fascinating because none of this is going away. It's been clear now that it's just, it's here to right. stay and it is very legitimate. So talk to us more about what you've seen in that space and also um, maybe how people can educate themselves more and, and really benefit from this mm-hmm. new way of, of finding wealth. One of the best aspects about these open source protocols and cryptocurrencies that are public and permissionless, and there are a lot of different types, but those that don't require a gatekeeper to give you permission to buy, to trade, to sell, is very, very important for minority communities that have been systemically marginalized and intentionally redlined, profiled in the financial way to have a derogatory impact. I have my own cautionary tale about using traditional finance to purchase a home for my mother this year that I ended up just paying off in full. Thank you, crypto, because I didn't want to deal with the traditional finance system and what I had to go through. Yes. Let's, let's capture that as a praise report and a shout moment. Lady Um, 180. Let's go. Let's get get lady 180. That's Drop some tambourine in here. (laughs) For Lil's praise dance. Let's go. (laughs) Yes. I was just sitting there and we're just in such challenging times right now, reminiscent of the time right before like the civil rights movement is that we find ourselves back in an environment there where something has to give in this moment in time. If you're going to be a modern minority, you have got to own things. Yeah. At least two, I'm a Gen Xer, at least two generations have now been brought up in a world where you license things and you rent things. Mm -hmm. And when the bottom falls out of this, what do you have to hold on to where power is traditionally centered in property ownership? Yeah. Think of the founding of this country, who was able to actually sit down at the table and be in the room where it happened to author this grand experiment. It was property owners. It wasn't all white men. You had to own property. Yeah. And yeah. fast forward to the ability to own property in a way that doesn't allow for current systems to keep you out. You need to be in this like yesterday. Now, that being said, you need to be educated. And I created Advantage Evans Academy. And I'm a, a tenured law professor by day. I'm the CEO of me all day. And I created mm-hmm. an academy with online offerings and a monthly membership meetup club where I do master classes at a very low. Some things are low cost. Some things are high end. Some people want to hire me to consult to just onboard them and they're willing to pay. They have a lot of money, but little time. And there's some people who have a lot of time and little money and some who have a little of both. You need to learn the language of this space and really focus on ownership because crypto assets are taxed as property. Mm -hmm. That means when you buy ETH and you've seen what happened to your Ethereum, right? Mm -hmm. You you have it and you you don't even put it any more in. Over time, that's performed well. Right, right. It's a different way of looking at money and assets. Like I think 
as someone who's a child of immigrants, mm. I was brought up thinking money is something you earn and money is something that you save and you put it away. Right. My parents still have never owned property. Mm. Well, actually, no, that's not true. They they own it's kind of like an interesting their their apartment building became a co-op, but they so they technically do own shares in that co-op now, but that was mm-hmm. sort of fortuitous and accidental. It's not like they went and actually bought it for themselves. They had just been living there for so long and then right. it transferred. Mm-hmm. Um I had bought my first apartment when I was twenty-five mm-hmm. and it was a tiny little I mean, it's not glamorous. It was like a tiny little place in New York City, but when I had done the math, it just made more sense because I was going to pay the same amount in rent as I would have for the mortgage. And that was my first experience at ownership of anything and like kind of investing in something that then appreciated over time. And when I finally did sell it, I made you know a little bit of money. It wasn't a ton, but it was my first understanding of owning something and then letting that money work for you in that way. Right, and I I feel fortunate to have had that experience firsthand. But so many of us, like like you're probably seeing Tanya, it's it's foreign. It's a foreign concept because how we think about money is usually so ingrained culturally as well. So money under the mattress, right? Money in a savings account where you're only getting I don't know like a point one percent AP APY, like it's barely doing anything for you. And that's how my grandparents treated their money. That's how my own parents still today, like have kind of still continue to look at their money. They're not putting it in, in um, vehicles that are going to pay off in a major way later on. Right. And that's exactly right. You'll never eradicate the wealth gap. I don't have the statistics in front of me, particularly in the black community, but we can extrapolate from that experience, the experience of other minority communities about our focus and necessarily so on education or being a high income earner mm-hmm. is never going to serve us well in particularly in periods of inflation. If you live in the same place every year, but your rent goes up, that's inflation. It's right. the same place. Mm, right. You're right. paying more. Right. right. Yep. So that's the other reason to shift our focus in addition to all of those things that have protected us throughout the years of, yes, you want to have income to deal with government issued currency, which is fiat. But wealthy people don't actually prefer income because income is taxed at a higher rate. Yeah. It's the reason that wealthy people and corporations are fighting so hard against the the adjustments to tax laws in order to have them pay in more to actually look like their fair share. They're paying far less because their capital assets and other things are not taxed at the same rate and they appreciate over time. Mm-hmm. The dollar is getting weaker. Fiat gets yeah. weaker. And it's often yeah. they print it like it's going out of style to fund wars and all sorts of other things. Trickle down just doesn't trickle. But property ownership is power and the property in a Web3 environment, both as a matter of crypto as, uh, cryptocurrencies, but also non-fungible tokens, right? That have the possibility of one, if you're selling them, you're receiving usually crypto in exchange, mostly in the Ethereum environment. There are others. And that asset is going to appreciate over time and outperform fiat. So it just is what it is about what we need to look look for in the future of money and the future of wealth. And I kind of want to stay on that with the NFT and the idea of ownership, particularly, I think, from a Black cultural perspective, ownership 
can often be about tangible assets like homes Mm -hmm. and and vehicles. But I also think in terms of the ideas of cultural production, whether that's phrases, Mm -hmm. ideas, and these things that often either get appropriated or there's so many stories like, I need to get away from Twitter, but yet I spiritually cannot. (laughs) But you see it with things like even the phrase on fleek, that was an original point where the creator had a phrase that went out into the consciousness and never benefited and then you have the old navies and the various brands who are now profiting off of this intellectual property and Mm -hmm. so many times if you think about once again even like a case like Henrietta Lacks and the lasting legacy of the ways that their ownership and just the tangible ability to retain assets or just your own cultural knowledge is often just Mm -hmm. diluted. I'm just curious to think and understand more about how you think kind of the crypto space can support that. I'm so glad that you brought up the sister who dropped that. I think it was a vine, right? The 30 seconds that changed her uh, lexicon for (laughs) years to come and an interesting and unfortunate point for her. And it makes the point you are making she was not able, she was not even in a position to monetize that. She was in, in debt. She, she wanted to go to school. She tried to have like a college fund after that to, after the fact of going virtual and really transforming um, cu- the culture, right? Across the board, as you mentioned, there was somebody else, a, a business in New York that actually registered her, her trademark. A trademark is a name, a word, a phrase, a symbol, device, a sound, right? Like NBC Chimes or some MGM Grand, like Roar. You can propertize those things. They are property. And to make our point from earlier, and some other company was able to do that and create on fleek, like nail bar or something like that. Yeah. She couldn't even use it. Wow. <laughs> um, and so and I compare it from a similar experience during that time. You might remember the Chewbacca mom. She went viral around the same time and Ellen had her on the show and people gave her things and her kids got scholarships to college. It's like a completely different experience. Yeah. And this idea, uh, Jesse Williams has this wonderful phrase from, I think it's from like 2017, maybe when he was accepting a Lifetime Achievement Award from BET. And he talks about the gentrification of genius and this idea that in the same way that an area, a physical area can be gentrified over time where it's completely devalued and then someone comes in and gets great tax breaks, they quote unquote build it up and then the people who live there aren't provided for and they get kicked out and the new people come in and then they change it, the title from Old Town to some zhuzhi town, right? With some great name and great lattes. The same thing happens in the digital space. Uh, where something, when I think of art and the way we have traditional gatekeepers in art, right? We have the galleries, you have auction houses, they get to set the value of what is determined to be fine art, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But then they can still the same, misappropriate the same thing from a, a copyright perspective. Copyright protects art and literature, things and creativity. So Final point in the NFT space, the non-fungible token space, there are a lot of black and brown artists that are winning because they now have peer-to-peer access to people who will purchase their art that 
sometimes in most cases is purely digital, but it can also be a physical art. It could be an experience. It could be a collectible and they don't have to be sold for $69 million like like Christie's did recently. They can yeah. sell for a hundred or a thousand and every time it's mm-hmm. resold, right? That author can still, that creative can still participate in downstream revenues because of smart contracts. I think you mentioned that earlier. Automating performance, automating enforcement without having to deal with racist people keeping you out, full stop. <laughs> And so yeah. that's a really powerful thing on the artistic side. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've talked to Remen about figuring out NFTs for modern minorities because yeah. I just think they're so like everything we do, everything you create can be an asset, can be right. a property, right? Like all of these recordings or our we we do rotoscopes and audiograms for each episode. And you know what? I actually think offline, Tanya, I'd love to talk to you about this more because the idea of IP then kind of right. like I just have questions around, for example, if we made this episode an NFT, like mm-hmm. how would that work? Because it's your name and likeness along with our property. So there's right. there's just like like specifics around it, but I do think it just opens up so many things. Everything from like when my seven year old draws something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I could I could totally turn that into an NFT and like that could go towards his college fund. And I have so like, we've got so many of those around my house. Like I'm going to go get some of my old ones, some architecture designs that this is going to be good. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or like any, any of your bars, any lady 180 one night, just sitting in front of a mic with a couple beers and you just, just go at it. I'm here for that. I'm taking notes. I'm taking all the notes. Perfect. So this actually leads to my next question. If we were to turn back time, back to the days when you thought maybe you'd be an architect or a rapper or both, mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you could go back to your younger self and give her some advice about anything that you know now that you would wish you had known then, what would you tell yourself? Oh boy, this is the stuff that years of therapy could help with. Looking back and and helping <laughs> little lady 180 to work this out. There's a book that's titled don't sweat the small stuff or maybe a phrase. And it's like, Mm -hmm. don't sweat the small stuff. And then like in parentheses, it's all small stuff. And I think about Mm -hmm. so much of what I was worried about. Most of which never comes to pass. His life turned out pretty great. Mm -hmm. I would lean into young little Tanya, I would lean into your creative. All of the educational opportunities are fantastic. I believe in, and my parents definitely taught me to give myself options. But I remember like a pivotal point after coming out of law school, I graduated with honors. It was the editor-in-chief of my law journal, started in big law. So I checked all the boxes, of course, but there was also space to continue to be creative. I also wrote two books of poetry. I was performing and I would spend all day at the law firm. And then at 10 o'clock, I'd find the nearest coffee shop and um, perform. It was a great time to be in Philadelphia. That was the Neo Soul era, Jilly from Philly coming out of that (laughs) era and so many great people I used to perform with or just to, to vibe in ciphers with. And at some point, the seriousness of life, (laughs) I allowed it to to eclipse the the creative aspects. I found my way back, but it was a long and winding road. And the way I think of creativity is it's really a, a gift or, or, or a blessing. And the first aspect of it is just to get it out of you and into the world. 
right? And I would have continued in some capacity figuring that out. So I'm grateful that I found my way back in some sense, but that would have been one thing I would definitely tell the younger Tanya to to keep that and to question and challenge anything that would dim that light. Oh, my my signature piece is, is titled Find Your Own Shine. You can find that at cdbaby.com and YouTube, whatever. And, and we'll put we'll, we'll put those links in, oh the, good. in the notes yes. as well. Yep. Yep. Every year my students seem to find their way to it. So I think it gives me some additional street cred um, as a professor, but really to, to continue to hone that. And anything that challenges the shine that is connected to creativity, then I'd go the opposite direction, run, abort mission opposite direction. So that would be my advice. Great. Well, Tanya, you've told us so many things and I I personally feel like I could talk to you forever. And (laughs) I'm sure Melissa feels the same way too. And now I think it's time for a speed round. Are you ready for speed round? Let's go. Let's go. All right. (laughs) So what's one thing about you that no one expects? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Oh my gosh. I think it's my humor. Not Mm. here when we're just vibing like this, but when I'm in my lawyer vibe, I can be very serious. I know this this might also shock people, but I can't be. (laughs) And so the other side of it, that what we're experiencing here today is hopefully refreshing, but definitely something that people wouldn't expect if they just know me in that space. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, one is I do think you're a lot of fun and you are totally the opposite. Like I I almost can't imagine you being super lawyery. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I've been waiting for you to laugh. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Like, wait, is she kidding? Oh shit, she's not. Oh no, no. We were having a final today. (laughs) Yeah, like she's serious. She's serious. (laughs) Love it. Okay. Recommend a book or a movie with characters that you relate to. Poetic Justice is one of my favorite movies. I know every word, Tupac and and Janet Jackson. And I feel like at the beginning of that movie and Janet is like super serious and she's not vibing with anyone. And it's this whole life progression. It's not a great movie, but it's one of those great movies because it's not great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and when I think of the evolution of how she comes to be towards the end and all sorts of conflict and and eventually leans into the things that she's been keeping herself from to really be on the other side of that is something that comes to mind. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, great one. Mm. Me too. What is your favorite mom dish? <laughs> Turkey meatloaf. Turkey followed by chicken salad. Oh no, I have to start. Wait, I have to start over again. Her, her <laughs> Christmas cookies, because we're Christmas about to go cookies? into Christmas cookie seasons. Now, a CEO of me like me, I made her monetize it, but in the early years when she was giving them away, and I was yeah. like, uh, these are gold. What are you doing? And they are by far the best. And then everything else, the turkey meatloaf, here for it, and that chicken salad. Good grief. Ooh, Wait, so so is your mom selling cookies? Like, what is the name of her cookie shop or her website? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I need to flavors, know. It's almost like, Christmas. Like, yeah, yeah. Picture, like, tell please. us about these cookies. Yeah. <laughs> There's I'm one cookie. To. She used to do a bunch of cookies. And there was like the stained glass cookie and the, the, the crushed candies. No, we're focusing. We're focusing and scaling on this one Nana Pecan bar it is crispy on the outside moist on the inside kind of think of like a 
blondie, but it's not cakey like a brownie would be, like a blondie. Yeah. But it has that yeah. essence to it. And let me tell y'all something. It's called Subi Cookies at WordPress.com. Got it, and got it. We're not doing any discounts this year. And also it almost <laughs> breaks up families because they literally fight over their bag. And we used to give one bag and they share it. There's no sharing of Nana's pecan bars. So good luck. Good luck, y'all. Get 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 your own. They sound so good. I'm literally typing this up so that we can include it in the note in the listen notes as well, you guys. So anyone listening, you like pecan bars, you're gonna you're gonna love this. Love it, love yeah, it. I'm willing to argue with a relative. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go to the website now and tighten it up. Gotta update our update our stuff right. for our big launch this 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 uh, coming soon. What is your least favorite food? <laughs> like turnips. I don't really get it. This would make my mother gasp, but, <laughs> and so we might have to take this out. I found this to be a cute comment. We might delete it later, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> turnips, you did to me. Fine. Totally fine. <laughs> Even with turnips, a nice roast? you're dead to me. Oh, here you go. Here you go. I know I'm a turnip you know apologist. Nice I'm not even gonna lie. <laughs> I'm gonna try no, this I, year. I, I'm with you, Tanya. Yeah, Tanya, I'm with you. Like turnips are weird. Like turnips and radishes. So yeah. radish, like to me, they're the same, even though they're kind of different. But right. they don't taste like dirt. Like there's nothing good about them. <laughs> and radishes. I mean, think about it. They're like the angry version because they're like spicy. Yeah. Like they're just they came yeah. in the world angry. They, they're really angry they're really angry the the only time they're tolerable is if they're pickled i'll do like a pickled radish yes. but yes but that's all o- that's also only if like i've eaten all the olives already like if there's like something briny <laughs> yeah. yeah like if there's other things on my plate and then the radishes are left like okay fine i'll, I'll go to that one I'll, I'll like deal with it but turnips turnips unless unless they're in like a really nice braise like yes. if you, if you like, like there's this great okay. Korean dish. It's like a braised short rib and they put turnips in there too. So it soaks up all the mm. juices. Yes. That and the is oil probably, and the, yes, the fat. Yeah. The green fat fatty. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. All right. Who's someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? Oh, Michelle Obama. Yeah. She'd be great. Really, really, because she's my first lady in my head, be my forever first lady, what she's accomplished and what she's done with her family, what she's done as an individual. I just, you know, adore her book and everything that she is. I'd love to kiki with her in the most respectful of floatist ways. I want to kiki with my, my, my forever floatist. We love a respectful kiki. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We love a respectful Kiki. And we just, we love Michelle. Like I, I listened to her book. So she narrated the audiobook version Mm -hmm. of Becoming and she was in my ears for like eight hours or whatever. And I was like, oh, I just want to be your best friend. Right. Like she's amazing. You get me. I feel seen. Yeah. I I feel you. I feel you. Lady 180, me and turnips. (laughs) Lady 180, Lady Obama, like. Yeah, I mean, it clearly. You see it, right? It's there. <laughs> Love. What does being a modern minority mean to you? Being a modern minority is pushing past 
limiting beliefs that are no longer serving us well, that there are certain beliefs and norms and values that we carry forward that protected us, that the consequences of not following and coloring inside the lines and checking the boxes not only meant that you were exposed to some type of danger or risk, but it that could include your life. We have an opportunity to think differently, to push beyond any limiting beliefs that no longer serve us well. And being a modern minority is about leaning into the possibilities of the future and what that looks like. It means reimagining our experience and really not only to continue to sow in the experience that makes this whole world better, but also to make sure that we receive the benefits of that. That is a perfect answer. Tanya, it was Professor Evans, Lady 180, however you like to be addressed. (laughs) Professor 180 to you. (laughs) (laughs) It was so great to have you and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. I appreciate you both so much. Let's go and let's grow. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. 